Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Majority Report, Rachel Maddow, Ring of Fire, Counterspin, Tom Hartman, and Mother Jones Radio. Ms. Devin, you've seen some of the media coverage since you got back. Um, does it accurately reflect what you saw when you were there? Well, in my case, I was out, I was out west in the Ambar province, and uh, the media kind of kind of goes for major things that happen usually in Baghdad or Fallujah during uh, voting voting times and uh, media doesn't really cover that IEDs go off every day numerous times and the public doesn't really know that they only see big things that happen and uh, so uh, I guess when you when you're talking about Baghdad or Fallujah it, it does but there's a lot of other things that happen every day whoops <laughs> the Fox News guest host Jim Angle was expecting the soldier to say, the media doesn't report all the good things that are going on. And guess what? A little truth accidentally found its way onto Fox News for functional retards. I'm not accusing that soldier to be of being a functional retard. I'm accusing the audience that Fox is targeting of being functional retards. No offense to the mentally challenged. Now, speaking of uh, PR... And the Bush uh, administration and their familiars in the media like Fox. The Washington Post is reporting that the Pentagon is conducting a new propaganda campaign to magnify the role of al-Qaeda figure Abu Musab al-Zarqawi in Iraq. Now, Washington Post is reporting this now. Amy Goodman in Democracy Now! and Seymour Hirsch and others have been reported to The Guardian for a long time, including... Whenever on when Bill Moyers used to be on and he would interview Iraqi people or experts on the Middle East, they would say a long time ago that the Bush administration is exaggerating the role of al-Qaeda figure Zarqawi. And uh, it says here further in the Washington Post that some military intelligence officials believe that the campaign has exaggerated Zarqawi's importance and helped the Bush administration link the Iraq war with September 11th, which we know is not true. The propaganda effort has also reportedly been used to build sentiment against non-U.S. foreigners in Iraq. It's designed to make people angry at people, I guess, that look similar to Zarqawi, not the Brits and the Americans. But there is, uh, there are some files that have, and briefs that have been uncovered from the Pentagon's covert ops here. One is called Villainize Zarqawi slash Leverage Xenophobia. <laughs> and the other document is called U.S. Home Audience, which, as you know, much of the stuff, Feardos Square, the statue coming down, a lot, the voting with the purple thumbs, all of this stuff is for the U.S. audience, designed yep. by the Republican a machine paid for with your tax dollars, and then at the uh, State of the Union... It's about the only thing they get right is the PR. I know, and that's where, again, I, that's why I say not incompetence. When they want to do something like smear campaigns, illegal surveillance, uh, mobilize people to get into it, well, don't think that's incompetent. They did it. They're in Iraq. They've stolen two elections. They have conned most of the people some of the time. They've done it. That's not incompetent. Not that it's that difficult to do, to con most of the people some of the time, especially when you're buttressed by a corporate media. But that's not incompetence. They actually are in Iraq. They actually have their gulags. They actually have tortured people. They actually do have illegal wiretaps. They actually have a machine that funnels money into Republican coffers. They actually have gotten away with it for years since the Republican Revolution of 94. So... That's not incompetence. What will bring them down inevitably is what always brings people of weak character down. Hubris, paranoia, and, and poor 
quality of humanity and a poverty of imagination eventually. Subpoena power. And subpoena power. That's why John Tanya's better watch his back because they're going to do everything they can not to let Conyers have subpoena power. I would. This would be my advice to John Conyers: Do not take any helicopter rides anywhere anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not crazy talk. There's no reason for me to trust these guys in any way, shape, or form. There's no reason for me to think that Dick Cheney accidentally shot that guy in the face. There's no reason for me to think uh, Abramoff hasn't funneled money to Israeli sniper school. There's no reason for me to think Jack Abramoff isn't. Uh, had some hand in the assassination of Gus Bullis. Now, if these were good guys, I'd say that's odd. That's anomalous. That doesn't make. That doesn't add up. It's 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 not like a child's jigsaw puzzle coming together. Abramoff, he's a great guy. No, you would never say that. You can say Abramoff. Yeah, he's been a bad apple since Beverly Hills High. There's there's no reason not to think that he's a bad guy. And. Anybody who says, like George Bush did today at Johns Hopkins, that he was ahead of the curve with that axis of evil speech is a bad man. Now, he knows he's wrong, but his personal failure, his flaws of personality, it's not incompetence. Look at what a mediocre guy is president. A machine stole two elections for him, and they've manufactured popularity for this piece of mediocrity. I think there's something to be said, the fact that he's also uh, sort of crazy. second story on the front page today is a strange one. Story probably not the most blockbuster political story you'll ever hear, but today, you know, today, it, for, today, for example, it's being overshadowed by the Iran situation, by the deaths of more U.S. soldiers in Iraq, being overshadowed by the Italian elections. But I have to say, this story that I'm about to do has really gotten under my skin. You know perfectly well what is the matter with you, Winston. You've known it for years, though you've fought against the knowledge. You are mentally deranged. You suffer... From a defective memory. You may remember reporting on this show a few months ago about stuff being pulled off library shelves, public documents, things that had been declassified, available to researchers and to the general public for years, suddenly turning up, these documents suddenly turning up missing in libraries. Another example, a serious delusion. Photographs about which you had hallucinations, which you believed you held in your hand. They never existed. Two months ago, the National Archives admitted that about 9,500 records, more than 55,000 pages of previously publicly available materials, had been quietly withdrawn from the National Archives, taken off the shelves, and made secret. Now, on the one hand, you might think, you know, after 9-11, we probably ought to take a look at some stuff that's been public record before. Like maybe, you know, we didn't realize before what a risk it would be to put nuclear power plant floor plans in the, in the public domain or something. But it's not that kind of stuff. At least some of what we know they have redacted, they've quietly taken out of the public record, is like memos on strategy in the Korean War where we got stuff wrong. Stuff from the 40s and 50s that has nothing to do with any conceivable current homeland security need whatsoever. How many fingers am I holding up this? Four. And if the party says there are not four, but five, then how many? Five. The National Security Archive at George Washington University, a private group, uh, yesterday got through the Freedom of Information Act. Yesterday, they got a 2002 memo from the National Archives that shows that the archives, the people responsible for maintaining the records of the United States for the benefit of you and I, for our benefit, the National Archives colluded 
with the CIA, the military, the Defense Intelligence Agency, colluded. The National Archives went along with not only this plan to take all of this old public stuff off the library shelves, but they also agreed to keep the plan itself secret and to conceal the identities of anyone who participated in taking the stuff off the shelves, taking the stuff out of the archives. Neither the past nor the present nor the future exists in its own rightness. Reality is in the human mind. Not in the individual mind, which makes mistakes and soon perishes, but in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. Those are all clips from 1984. But, but in my movie, in my warped, sentimental, unabashedly liberal, proud American movie about this country and our values and our freedom and our future, the people on the front lines, the heroes in my movie, are reporters, like investigative reporters, artists, librarians, the people who keep records of stuff, who keep our ideas safe and organized and accessible. These, in my movie, these are the infantrymen, in, in my sentimental view of the fight for American freedom, right? So the idea that the National Archives, the archivists, the librarians were going along with this plan to yank stuff off the shelves and keep that process secret, to conceal the identities of anyone who did it, I find this scary. How many fingers am I holding up? And if the party says there are not four, but five, then how many? Five. It scares me for the future if, if the National Archives is going along with this plan to pull stuff out of public record from the 40s and 50s with no announcement, no explanation, just hoping that history will change. We'll never know this stuff was there in the first place. That is scary. Sometimes, Winston, sometimes they're five, sometimes they're three, sometimes they're four of them at once. You know, again, when I when I tell these little news tidbits, it's it shouldn't be like a news flash. Let's just uh, file this under. Guess what? The Bush administration and the CIA did again today. I mean, it's just an on, sort of an ongoing tapestry of lowered expectations. So the National Security Archive has revealed that the government agency responsible for state archives colluded with the CIA and other intelligence agencies to remove thousands of previously declassified historical documents that were, until that time, available to the public. And during the Clinton administration, many, many declassified. There was a much more of a sense of openness. So in a secret agreement, because secret is always the key, people. Secret, secret, secret. Why? Because it's the hidden ice that will destroy your boat. That is what that that is the the corporation formerly known as the U.S. government. Secrecy is number one. Contempt for you is number two. And you're going to pay for it with your dollars and maybe your life or your health. In a secret agreement, the National Archives and Records Administration agreed to remove the archival records and reclassify them in order to avoid scrutiny from researchers. The reclassification scheme was disclosed earlier this year. But details of how this has come about is still unknown. Now, we have talked about this before, and we've also talked about before how among the first things the Bush administration did, A, reinstall the global gag order for their abstinence-only programs denying reproductive rights, which are human rights, around the world for women who, de- who depend on uh, American financial aid for uh, population control, health care, uh, AIDS prevention and education, but no, no, no. Bush administration gag order for 
aid organizations talking about reproductive rights and also denying aid for anybody who isn't practicing abstinence only. In addition to that, they reclassified tons and tons of documents installing Alan Weinstein to be the gatekeeper of the archives. And for any Freedom of Act, he was requested that he say no. They also made sure that they started deregulating things right away. That was, again, one of the first things they do, started giving corporate giveaways to make sure that before anyone was looking, they could start deregulating different things and uh, making sure the pharmaceutical company was taken care of, the energy industry was taken care of, all these things that had been in the offing uh, from before they even stole the election, and Antonin Scalia, who should have recused himself, as should have Clarence Thomas, should have recused themselves, installed George W. Bush as the CEO in charge of the corporation formerly known as the U.S. government. And it sort of tells you what, what the priorities are, obviously. Not only are the pri- priorities sort of undermining democracy and the electoral process, such as it was, but also to get their agendas uh, taken care of and their quid pro quos taken care of. But they also wanted to make sure that in the archives what they classified were any records from the Reagan and Bush one era. Now they wanted to do this to protect the corruption of the Reagan Bush one era, but they also wanted to do this to make sure that nobody could read about what went on in Iraq and with their, with their former ally Saddam Hussein at that time, knowing full well what was in the offing. But again, it's just a sort of a totalitarian government that believes that you have no right to information. You have no right to know what this government is doing with your money and your livelihood. You have no right, nor any invitation, to understand the workings of your secret corporation, formerly known as the U.S. government. And the contempt is clearly on Cheney's face at all times, that, that sneer, that smirk that Daryl Hammond has down pat. That, that is contempt for you. And George Bush's uh, sort of like frat boy demeanor, contempt for you. Condoleezza Rice's good-natured contempt is still contempt, nonetheless, for you. Lynn Cheney, pretending that university professors should lose their jobs for talking about an honest historical perspective of the world. Uh, contempt and just nasty, nasty. You know, who, who the hell would marry Dick Cheney in the first place? I have, I have no idea. And have you seen recently, you know, Peter Pace, that apologist for Don Rumsfeld's failed policies in Iraq, that, that poor schmuck who... Stands in uniform next to to uh, Don Rumsfeld at all those Pentagon briefings where Don Rumsfeld speaks in a very postmodernist way that makes no sense, um, very elliptical way that Al Franken does well, does a good impression of that. And poor Peter Pace, who is visibly getting skinnier and skinnier, he is uh, Peter Beanpole. He just stands there and lies. Because he thinks it's the right thing to do, or they have some nasty porno on him or something, some films they took a la The Firm with Tom Cruise sleeping with that lovely actress, and then they use it against to keep him in The Firm. Same idea for Peter Pace, Colin Powell, I, John McCain, I don't know how they, they keep these people in line, but poor Peter Pace, his neck couldn't get thinner. His, his, and that's why I always say this, it's, it's amazing that Scotty McClellan is still such a pudge. And I, I'm not a fattist. I'm not against fattist, you know, obesity or anything. I myself have spent the majority of my life overweight, sometimes d- waltzing dangerously close, morbidly obese. So believe me, I am not a, uh, a, 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 a lookist. But you would think that Scotty McClellan, anxiety alone, would, you'd think he'd be Peter, 
Peter Pace thin. But I'm assuming it's the medication, the antidepressants and the Xanax that, that McClellan is on just to get out of bed in the morning, have slowed his metabolism down so that he is as, as pudgy and doughy and 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 annoying. I, I don't know what, what to say. But you would think a lot of these people in the White House working 16 to 18-hour days on making sure democracy is undermined. You know, if they actually put that energy into running a government, it is amazing what could have been getting done in this White House. But they spend 16 to 18-hour days on undermining every institution that this country allegedly holds dear. And that's a lot of work. But you'd think there'd be a lot of rail-thin people who just are sweating profusely through their clothes, looking like Albert Brooks in broadcast news when he was anchoring the weekend news. Just flop sweat and and chain smoking. And maybe they do. I don't know. But poor Peter Pace, man. Boy, is he probably, he probably never sleeps lying like that. Uh, support Saying yesterday, the day before, I fully support Don Rumsfeld's policies and I would do exactly the same thing again in Iraq going with the same troop level and oi oi the pamp attack if you want to have a little fun for the next few weeks pick out one of those mindless authority dependent republicans who you've had to endure for quite a while now and bring up the subject of bush and cheney selectively leaking documents about deep cover american cia agents even the most ditto-head, mind-melded Republican is going to sound an awful lot like Ms. Stevenson trying to come to the aid of Beavis and Butthead. Because the truth is, there is no defense for the actions by our American president and vice president engaging in conduct that's only a few steps removed from all-out treason. You're going to hear the suffering in your Republican cheerleader's voice. You'll hear a level of agony and concern that's damn near palpable. And as you hear your whining Republican apologist deliver his canned TV talking head response that Bush and Cheney technically didn't break any treason laws, a line that only Britt Hume and Bill O'Reilly could deliver with a straight face, understand that that's the reasoning of a true-to-life sociopath. This story about our leaker-in-chief, it's not tough to understand. George Bush and Dick Cheney sat down together and came up with a plan they believed would discredit and embarrass Joseph Wilson because Wilson had exposed both of them as being liars, liars who were willing to massacre American soldiers and innocent Iraqi mothers, fathers, and children to secure oil for all of their Exxon buddies. This Bush-Cheney treason story didn't originate with some wild-eyed liberal Bush critic. No, the story came from the mouth of one of the most loyal Oil Republican trolls who's ever been a part of Karl Rove's dirty trick machine. Scooter Libby again proves that there really is no honor among corrupt bottom-feeding politicos because as soon as he saw Rove, Bush, and Cheney start their program to throw Libby under the train, well, Libby started making sure that he wasn't going to go alone. We've seen this story before with Halderman, Dean, and Chuck Colson during the last Republican attempt to undermine decency in the Oval Office at the hand of Richard Nixon. So after your whole Hopelessly authority-dependent Republican apologist gives you the only Fox News spin he can remember. Ask him about the fact that Scooter Libby testified before a grand jury where he told that grand jury that never in his experience in politics had he ever recalled a time when a sitting president handpicked a highly classified CIA report so it could specifically be leaked for purely political cover. And I got to tell you, Scooter Libby said that, not Michael Moore. 
Even Scooter Libby would have a tough time explaining Bush's conduct, especially in light of Bush's public speeches before the world, where Bush makes the statement that if there are any leaks in my administration, I want to know because that person's going to be taken care of. George Bush spoke those words. So look no further, Mr. W., because America now understands that you are the culprit who put CIA agents' lives in jeopardy purely for political gain. It had to be abundantly clear to most anyone except the most character-damaged Republican team player that Bush couldn't fire Karl Rove or Scooter Libby when it was obvious to everyone that they were part of the leak because Bush himself ordered the leak. Now it makes much more sense to all of us why Mr. W. lawyered up with some of the best criminal defense lawyers in the business an entire year before the story broke about his very direct and personal involvement. One last point. If you really want to watch one of those morally challenged neocons who are comfortable calling themselves Republicans, by the way, if you want to watch them squirming around like a confused Smeagol, remind them that there's no president in American history, including Dwight D. Eisenhower after World War II, who's classified more government documents than Mr. W. Bush. Not only has Bush classified everything from his lunch menu to his university records as sensitive national security documents, he's actually gone back and reclassified about 70,000 government documents that had already been declassified before he ever occupied the Oval Office. So it's overwhelmingly clear exactly what Mr. W. and Mr. Cheney were up to when they handpicked a special classified document and allowed Scooter Libby to let the leak begin. So have a little fun this week as this story develops and understand that it won't be just your morally, ethically challenged Republican minions who are squirming all over the place on this one. You're also going to see a few Republican congressmen sweating blood and wondering just how badly they're going to be hurt in the 2006 cycle. Because just as Senator Arlen Specter warned his Republican pals, Mr. Bush, you got some splaining to do. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. A few weeks ago on Counterspin, we talked about yet another explosive memo from the run-up to the Iraq War. First reported in the February 3rd edition of the London Guardian, the memo of a January 2003 meeting between George W. Bush and British Prime Minister Tony Blair showed the White House was set to invade Iraq no matter what the status of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. This memo, in some respects, was similar to other leaked documents, including one known as the Downing Street Memo. But there's one big difference. This memo was covered on the front page of the New York Times on March 27th. And with the Times seal of approval, it was picked up around the media, where some outlets promptly blew the story. On CBS Evening News, anchor Russ Mitchell said that, quote, This memo seems to indicate, once again, that going into the war, the British and the Americans had bad intelligence, close quote. CBS reporter Lara Logan agreed, but talked only about the revelation that Bush didn't think there would be ethnic or religious conflict in Iraq. That's an important point, but surely not the most damning information. On NBC Nightly News, anchor Brian Williams explained that the story was from the now-it-can-be-told file, though why it could only be told a month after it was first told wasn't clear. Equally unclear was reporter Andrea Mitchell's comment that the White House, quote, said that the president's public and private comments were fully consistent, close quote. 
As Greg Mitchell of Editor and Publisher pointed out, statements by Bush and Blair after their meeting directly contradict the memo. So someone's not telling the truth. You'd like to think there is some appetite in the press to figure out who's lying. On May 29th, 2003, this just a few weeks after George W. Bush's initial proclamation, you recall uh, Bush, uh, I believe it was May 1st of 2003, said, uh, My fellow Americans, major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. So, you know, he, he comes out and he says, okay, we've won the war. And then on the 29th, so we're about three, four weeks later, Ari Fleischer comes out and says, uh, oh, and by the way, those weapons of mass destruction? Well, actually, here's the, the setup with Helen Thomas asking the question and then Ari Fleischer's response. Is the president satisfied with the intelligence he got before the war? Because now one cabinet officer is saying... Uh, They've buried the weapon, another says they destroyed them, and another official says they... What is the president's view on all that? The president is indeed satisfied with the intelligence that he received, and I think that's borne out by the fact that, just as Secretary Powell described to the United Nations, we have found the bio-trucks that can be used only for the purpose of producing biological weapons. Whoa! Ari Fleischer, uh, yes, we found the weapons of mass destruction. And, in fact, a soundbite that played over and over and over on Fox News uh, so long that probably people who watch Fox News regularly can still repeat it from memory. That's proof perfect that the intelligence in that regard was right on target. don't think it's anything to dismiss that Iraq had, contrary to their protestations to the United Nations, trucks for the purpose of, of, of producing biological weapons. They said they didn't have them. They got caught. Proof perfect that they had them. The only use for those trucks is to produce biological weapons. So there you go, the official spokesman for the president saying that the president's very pleased by this. And, in fact, as the Washington Post notes, on that same day, May 29, 2003, uh, George W. Bush proclaimed a fresh victory for his administration. Two small trailers captured by U.S. truck uh, troops turned out to be the long-sought mobile biological laboratories. George Bush said, quote, we have found the weapons of mass destruction, end quote. Although, oddly, that web's, that uh, that audio clip, and I recall it, has just vanished from the White House website. You go to whitehouse.gov and you look for that, that uh, you know, uh, press conference he had on the 29th of May, 2003. You can't find that audio anywhere. It's uh, probably worth money. Anyhow, uh, we have Ari Fleischer, though, in, in his own words. But here's the story behind the story. The Bush administration already knew. Already knew. Even, but quoting the Washington Post... Even as Bush spoke, U.S. intelligence officials possessed evidence that it was not true, it being what he was saying. The claim repeated by top administration officials for months afterward was hailed at the time as a vindication of the decision to go to war, but even as Bush spoke, U.S. intelligence officials possessed evidence that it was not true. A secret fact-finding mission, this uh, Joby Warwick's article, the L.A. Times, Washington Post Service, secret fact-finding mission to Iraq not made public until now, we just learned this, had already concluded that the trailers had nothing to do with biological weapons. Now, those of you who are longtime listeners to this program will recall three years ago, almost four years ago on this program, by the way, this month, our third anniversary of the program, we're starting our fourth year, our, God, I say three months, our third anniversary of the program, we're starting our fourth year this month, 
about three years ago, more or less, Scott Ritter was on this program, and he said, sure, there's, there's trailers over there, and they have fermenters in them. And he said, I saw them when I was a weapons inspector. Of course they're there. He said, I can probably find photos of them for you if you want. I said, what are they for? He says, they're to make hydrogen gas, to fill up balloons. You send the balloons up into the air to find out what the, what the, uh, which, which way the winds are blowing at 500, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 feet so that you can sight your artillery. It's for cannon sighting, for artillery sighting. And that's what they were. And as the Washington Point, uh, Post points out, leaders of the Pentagon-sponsored mission transmitted their unanimous findings to Washington in a field report on May 27, 2003, two days before the president's statement. The three-page field report and a 122-page final report three weeks later were stamped secret and shelved. Meanwhile, for nearly a year, administration and intelligence officials continued to publicly assert that the trailers were weapons facilities. One expert who studied the trailers, quote, there was no connection to anything biological, end quote. Interviews reveal that the technical team was unequivocal in its conclusion that the trailers were not intended to manufacture biological weapons. In June, now here we are a month after this report came back, Secretary of State Colin Powell declared that, quote, the confidence level is increasing that the trailers were intended for biowarfare. In September, what is that, five months after, the re- after they knew that these things had nothing to do with biological facilities, that they were for making hydrogen to fill up balloons. Vice President Dick Cheney pronounced the trailers to be mobile biological facilities and said they could have been used to produce anthrax or smallpox. Amazing. The, the, the lies of the Bush administration, and now, you know, at the time we thought, geez, these guys are just incredibly incompetent. And now we're discovering, no, it's got nothing to do with incompetence. They are, they are intentionally misleading us. They are conducting psychological operations, operations against the United States of America. Some of the stories making headlines this morning, but every day here on The Rachel Maddow Show, we do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's underbelly political tactic is the myth of presidential prerogative, uh, the right-wing making the government more like a monarchy every day argument uh, that the presidency conveys magical powers that supersede all other laws, that the president is, by definition of the fact that he is the president, somehow above the law. You just assert this in the hopes that that means that people won't come after you for breaking the law. You might have thought this this got kind of put to bed. This argument got put to bed with the whole Watergate thing. Oh, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. That just is not supposed to fly anymore. But check out the parallels between Dick Nixon saying that in 1977 after Watergate and what George W. Bush said yesterday. And that's why I declassified the document. You can't you can't talk about. You're not supposed to talk about classified information. Uh, and so I declassified the document. You're not supposed to talk about classified information, so I declassified it. I decided to talk about classified information even though it was classified. By virtue of the fact that I decided to talk about it, that means it wasn't classified anymore. See what he's saying here? You can tell that he knows he's got circular Nixonian logic here. The more he tries to explain this, the less sense he makes. 
I will say this, that after we liberated Iraq, there was um, questions in people's minds about, you know, about the basis on which I made the statements. Huh? In other words, going into Iraq. And so I decided to declassify the NIE for a reason. I wanted to see pe people to see what some of those statements were based on. What is he talking about? I, some of my statements, the people I wanted, the people, the tr he's not making any sense there because you can tell there's something misfiring in his brain. He knows he's not making sense. He knows his argument doesn't make any sense. He's talking about declassifying the NIE. What's the NIE? The National Intelligence Estimate. It's a big classified thing that says what we know as a country. We heard from Michael Isakoff from Newsweek magazine last hour on this very, very radio program that the president, no, regardless of what he said yesterday, did not declassify the National Intelligence Estimate. He didn't. He, had he done that, that probably would have been a good thing. But instead, he arranged for a selective leak of a selected part of the National Intelligence Estimate, a selected part that was misleading. It's like with the Gettysburg Address, right? Gettysburg Address starts four score and seven years ago. And I decided to leak that part of the part of the Gettysburg Address that goes seven years ago. <laughs> like I just I'd be a little misleading. He just wanted to leak out the part, not the part that said that the uranium in Niger, Saddam wants nuclear weapons thing is B.S., because that was also in the National Intelligence Estimate. No, he wanted to leak just the other part that helped him make his dubious case. I have said it a thousand times. This story is not as complex as it is being made out to be. This is what it boils down to. The President of the United States leaked classified information that the U.S. government knew to be false for the purpose of misleading us, for the purpose of misleading you and I, the American people, about the war in Iraq. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. It's declassified because it's illegal to leak classified information. I leaked it. I'm the president. So that means I can't have done something illegal because I'm the president. So when I spoke about that declassified information, it magically became declassified. Did I declassify it when I leaked it? Because if I leaked it when it was classified, I'm in trouble. He's misfiring. He loses his ability to speak in that Q&A session yesterday because he know he's, knows he has been caught in a Nixonian trap. The tactic at work here is fake presidential power, just asserting it and hoping that it puts people off your trail. You just say you've got this power. Maybe nobody will check to actually see if you do. If I was president, I'd get elected on Friday. Assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday. Today, the anniversary of the death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, arguably one of the greatest presidents in the history of the United States. Roosevelt, in a speech before the Teamsters in 1944, this was just uh, months before he died, actually, September 23rd, 1944, and uh, about six months before he died, uh, talking about how. This guy, Adolf Hitler, wrote this book, Mein Kampf, in which he said that there is a technique to lying to people. Don't ever go with the little lie. Always go with the big lie. And by the way, the Republicans are doing this now. They've adopted it. Keep in mind, this is from 1944. The opposition in this year has already imported into this campaign a very interesting thing the court has found. 
Now, by the way, keep in mind, he's imported into this campaign. He's running for re-election in 1944. This is a campaign of 1944, and the Republicans are claiming that the Great Depression was caused by the Democrats, even though three consecutive administrations, Republican administrations, Cooling, Harding, and, uh, and, and, uh, and Hoover, and all the tax breaks and all the laissez-faire economics is what led to the Great Depression. The Republicans are trying to reinvent history and claim that, oh, it was because of the Democrats that we had the Great Depression. So and that was one of their arguments during the, during the campaign of 44. So here's, anyhow, Roosevelt continues. They have imported the propaganda technique invented by the dictators abroad. Remember, a number of years ago, there was a book, Mein Kampf, written by Hitler himself. The technique was all set out in Hitler's book, and it was copied by the aggressors of Italy and Japan. And it was also copied by the Republicans. According to that technique, you should never use a small falsehood. Never use a small falsehood. Always a big one. For its very fantastic nature would make it more credible. If only you keep repeating it over and over and over again. Now, the Teamsters thought this was pretty funny, but this was deadly serious stuff, and Roosevelt knew it, although he still couldn't resist making a joke about how the Republicans were doing this. Well, let's take some simple illustrations that come to mind. For example, although I rubbed my eyes and I read it, we have been told that it was not a Republican depression, but a Democratic depression, from which this nation was saved in 1933. That this administration, this one, today... He's talking about this administration being the Roosevelt administration. This is what the Republicans were charging. ...is responsible for all suffering and misery that the history books and the American people have always thought had been brought about during the 12 ill-fated years when the Republican Party was in power. So, you know, again, he points out, uh, the Republicans are saying that uh, Democrats are responsible for the Great Depression. Sorry, it's the Republican Great Depression. And then he goes on. Here's the joke. Now, there's an old and somewhat lugubrious adage which says, never speak of a rope in the house of a man who's been hanged. <laughs> never speak of a rope in the house of a man who's been hanged. Hmm. In the same way, if I were... A Republican leader speaking to a uh, mixed audience. The last word in the whole dictionary that I would think of using is that word depression. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Franklin Delano Roosevelt speaking before the Teamsters on September 23rd, 1944. City unknown, but uh, an old speech. I don't know about you, 
but I am so sick and tired of these lying, thieving, arrogant, contemptuous, holier-than-thou, right-wing, cruel, crude, rude, swaggering, torturing, pompous, hypocritical, incompetent, draft-dodging, women's rights-denying, Medicare-cutting, uncouth, corrupt, cowardly, spiteful, boorish, vengeful, homophobic, xenophobic, xylophonic, racist, sexist, ageist, cashist, fascist, audaciously ignorant, poverty-inducing, cocky, autocratic, corporate suck-up, primitive, uppity, imperious, brutal, brutish, high-handed, inhuman, inhumane, insolent, know-it-all, snotty, noxious, supercilious, jobs overseas shipping, conceited, preemptory, bombing of a country that had nothing to do with 911, smarty pants, loudmouth, bullying, swell-headed, narcissistic, blustering, merciless, graceless, tactless, gutless, spineless, shameless, avaricious, malevolent, demonizing, baby seal club and callous, menacing your hand under a rock, the maggoty remains of a marsupial, oppressive, vulgar, showboating, tyrannizing, peace-hating, water and air and ground and media pollutant, which is pretty much all the pollutant you can get, deadly, haughty, venomous, virulent, mephitic, bloodthirsty, treasonous, callous, ethically deprived, depraved, did I say evil? I'm not sure if I said evil, because I want to make sure I said evil. Evil, cretinous, fool, toad, butt-wipe, lizard stick, lackey, imperialistic tool, slime buckets in the Bush administration that I could just spit. Impeachment, hell no. Impalement upon the sharp and righteous sword of the people's justice. For Mother Jones Radio, I'm Will Durst. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now go to thebestoftheleftpodcast.com, and there is so much to do. There is something for everyone. No matter how you want to get involved with the show, everything from... As simple as voting for the show at Podcast Alley to uh, logging in and chatting on the message board. It's all right there, provided very neatly under the section titled Support the Show. Now, I love watching the number of listeners I have grow, but even more than that, I love actually hearing from you guys, no matter what form those comments come in. I do genuinely try to respond to, you know, every bit of feedback that I get and whatever form it comes. So take advantage of that now because when this show gets huge, I'm just not going to have enough time to respond to all the emails and you're going to wish that uh, you had taken advantage of my spare time while I still have it. So get on that now, bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Have a good one, everybody.